There's an awful lot of you who have younger children, and you are at the beginning in many ways of what you're doing with those children, and God's Word speaks very plainly about parenting. Uh, sometimes you'll hear parents say this, well, we, we did our best. And I suppose that every Christian parent does their best. But what we have to do is our best in accordance with what this book says. It's not simply a matter of, well, I did my best. You and I have to approach parenting as we approach all of life, and that is with an open Bible. And I need to say, I've got to find out what this book says about life. And I've got to find out what this book says about parenting. And I've got to give myself to it. Uh, you and I cannot improve on God's way or God's word. Uh, there's enough here for us. We simply have to get serious about it, find out what it says. And God certainly has a lot to say about parenting. Tonight, I would simply title our message, Parental Responsibility. Every parent has to accept responsibility for his own children. The Bible says that children are in heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. Never get over the fact that God has entrusted to us the privilege of bringing life into the world. And then to recognize that when that baby is conceived, that baby's going to live somewhere forever. That's incredible to me. And God entrusts that privilege to us. And so it's pretty serious business that children are in heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is His reward. That's serious business. What I have found in my years of ministry is two things about parenting. Number one, you see some folks rear their children and they are not giving enough attention to what the Bible says about it. And then their children grow up and often make wrong choices, bad choices. And then I have found, as you have found too, that that is often when parents look for somebody to blame. I want you to know something. You can't blame anybody else. Sometimes people will talk about uh, the pastor. You know, the pastor never really cared about the kids. Sometimes you hear people say that. Or the youth program. Well, you know, the youth program never was really any good at our church. Or maybe it's the Christian school, the administrator was too nasty, or the Christian school teachers were unfair, or whatever else it might be, and people are looking for somebody to blame. Now listen, God never gave your kids to the pastor. God never gave your kids to the school administrator. God never gave your kids to anybody but you. God gave your kids to you. And the simple fact is that everybody else is going to fail your children, right? But you can't, and I can't. Now, we do, but the point is it all comes down to us as parents. God gives them to us, nobody else. And so too many people are going around trying to find somebody else to point the finger at and say, well, you know, if he had been better, if she had been better, if they had done differently, then my kids would have turned out differently. But God gave them to parents. The second thing that I hear from folks along the way is this. You know, the world is different now than what it was when we grew up. And it is, isn't it? And it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and it's going to keep on getting worse until the Lord comes back and takes us home. 
But I cannot let the increasing wickedness of the world become my excuse as a parent for why my kids go the wrong direction. I can't do that. And for me, I always think back to Noah and realize that here was a man who preached the message of God for some 120 years and got absolutely no converts except his own family. And wherever you are tonight, and I realize tonight there are parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and whatever. Wherever you are tonight, I'm going to challenge you. Get serious about your family. Beg God for your kids, even if they're grown up. Beg God for your grandchildren. Beg God for your great-grandchildren. That somehow, by God's grace, when the Lord Jesus finally takes us home, we might go home as a family. That's got to be our heart. Parental responsibility. We're going to look at a number of verses tonight. Some of the verses are going to give us direct instruction and challenge about parenting. Some others are going to illustrate from the experience of others. But as we go through these texts and then conclude the message, what I hope you will do is walk away and say, I have to accept responsibility. And I'm going to do that for my family, for my kids. Turn with me, if you will, as we begin to Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Along the way in this series, we're going to give more attention to this verse than we are tonight, but I just want to make a few comments on it as we begin. Because it's one of the clearest challenges in the Bible, dealing with parental responsibility. Proverbs 22 and verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I've heard an awful lot of explanations about this verse. I remember when I first got saved and heard somebody preach on this verse, or heard this ver verse spoken of, the context was kind of like this. You know, for a long time, my kids went away from the Lord. But eventually they came back and praised the Lord. You know what Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Now listen, if your kids go away from the Lord and come back, hallelujah, we'll all rejoice in that. But listen, that's not what this verse says. That's not what this verse says. This verse says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Doesn't say he'll depart and come back. It says he will not depart from it. But I've heard many people use it that way. Well, you know, they came back and praised the Lord. That's not what this verse says. Trish and I were riding along one day and we heard a preacher preaching on this verse. Here's what he said Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he'll not depart from it. Now, what that verse means is that every child has a, a certain bent certain leanings in their life, and you as a parent need to find out what those are and encourage them. For instance, your child might have an interest in fine arts, and if he does, then you need to make sure you get him art lessons or get him music lessons, or maybe your child likes athletics. Well, if so, then get him on the community team or whatever it might be. And I, I kind of listened to him, and I thought, is he trying to preach this verse? Because that's not what this verse says. This verse has nothing to do with the leanings or the bent of a child. This verse is a very straight out, plain, simple truth. And all you have to do is believe it. 
all you got to do. Believe it. Obey it. Get serious about parenting. Train up a child in the way he should go. Now, the implication is, if you do that, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, training is not salvation. You don't get trained to get saved, do you? You can't train somebody to get saved. Training is all about character. And understand that as a parent, it is your obligation to mold the character of your children. If I was to talk to you tonight about your child and I would say to you, now listen, do you want your child to grow up to be a responsible person, a diligent person, a hard worker, a loving person, whatever it might be, and I could take you through a series of character traits, and I said, do you want your child to be like that? You'd say, well, sure I do. Then what I'd say to you is, then you're the one that has to make it happen. Children just don't happen to grow up and be responsible or happen to grow up and be loyal, or happen to grow up and be whatever else it might be, their character must be molded. Somebody has to make that happen. And that's why God gives children to parents. Because that's my responsibility. That's your responsibility. You train them up. You mold their character. And you know what? When you mold their character in the way they should go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. That's what the verse says. Again, we'll come back to that text in this series, but let's go to another place. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is giving requirements for men who would be in the ministry and then for men who would serve as a deacon. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 4 talking about the requirements for one who would be a pastor. In verse 4 it says that the man who would be a pastor must be one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And then verse 5 makes it very clear. There's a little parenthesis here, and here's what it says. If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now listen, that's God's requirement. And in simple terms, the fifth verse is saying this. Look, if a man cannot even rule his own house, which is obviously going to be somewhat numerically small, if he can't even rule his own house, how is he ever going to provide the leadership necessary for the larger body, the church? Therefore, if a man is going to be a pastor, this must be true of his home. Verse 4. He must be one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection. That means under control. Preachers, kids are supposed to be under control. And then it says this, and this is the important phrase. This is the phrase that comments on the kind of parenting that takes place, the little phrase, with all gravity. Now the term with all gravity basically means this, that the children are under control, but they're under control with gravity. That means they are responding to the authority over them, in this case, the parent. They are responding to the parent with both reverence and respect. Now, we have seen parents who have their children under control, but there is no respect from those children back to the parents. 
We have seen children who are under control who are literally scared to death of their dad. Boy, you get out of line. Boy, my dad will. That's not the parenting that's talked about here. The parenting that is talked about here is this. This is to be a parent who has his children under control. They are doing what is right and they are obedient, but the parent is doing it with this kind of skill that he is so handling his children that they respond to him and say, Hey, Dad, we love you. We respect you. We reverence you. And we're under control in total respect of you. Now, while that text is given in the context of the requirements for pastor, listen, that's for every dad. That's for every dad in this auditorium tonight. This is what God wants for the family. And it's parental responsibility. You see, somebody might say, as it's a requirement for the pastor, well, man, you can't help it. What if the kids grow up and they're rebels? Well, God must have known all about the possibilities when he said, wait a minute, I want you to know something. If a man's going to be a pastor, this has to happen in his home. And what God has set as a bottom line requirement for the pastor is an ideal for every family. And so as you are parents here tonight, especially as you're a dad here tonight, we understand you need to beg God for this. Lord, I want to so handle my children that I can control them in a God-honoring way, but I do it so that they respond to me with reverence and respect. That's what's supposed to happen in every Christian family. Look at another text. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, the fourth verse is a text that speaks of parenting. But I want you to see something. I want you to look at verse 1. Because there's a pattern in Scripture, and in this context here we are talking, of course, about family authority. But there's a pattern in Scripture, and the pattern is this, that God speaks to people who are under authority, and then He always comes back and speaks to the one who is in authority. Because God always brings this whole concept of authority into balance. I want you to see it in this text. Ephesians 6 and verse 1 is instruction to children. It's instruction for every child here tonight. Here's what it says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now that's for every young person here tonight. God says that to you, young people. God says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now with that very strong word of instruction... Paul, the Spirit of God through Paul, now comes back in the fourth verse. And it's as if he does this. He says, now, Dad, I just told your children to obey you. But he says, but now, Dad, I want to say something to you. And so in verse 4, he says this. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Now, Dad, I just told your children to obey you, but now I want to tell you something. You make sure as a father that you don't provoke your children to wrath. Now, the term provoke and the term wrath in that verse are the exact same word in the original language. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, fathers, you make sure that you don't provoke your children to the point that they get provoked. 
In other words, parents, may we never forget that God gave us our children, listen, not for us. My children are not mine to simply do with whatever I please. My children have been given to me that I might rear them for him, for God. So I don't have absolute authority as a dad. As if, hey, I'll do whatever I want to do. God says, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I gave that child to you. Now, I've told the child to obey you, but I want to tell you something. You make sure you don't provoke that child to wrath. What's the idea of that challenge, provoke not your child to wrath? Well, the idea is that parenting is to be done in such a way that we don't bring our children to the point of frustration, that we don't bring our children to the point of bitterness, that we don't bring our children to the point that they have anger legitimately against us because of the way we treat them. Now, might other people come into their life and provoke them to wrath? Yeah. Somebody else might do that. That school teacher might do that. That youth leader might do that. That somebody else might do that. But, Dad, you're not supposed to do that. How could it happen? Let me ask you this, Dad, Mom, too. Do you discipline your children based on established standards of your home? Or do you discipline your children based on the mood that you're in on a given day? Which is it? That's just one example, but I want you to think about it. I want you to think about uh, a fellow going to work one day and he gets called into the office. And the boss says, Charlie, I got good news for you. You are getting a promotion. You're getting a raise. We're so happy with the way you've been conducting yourself. Uh, listen, why don't you go home, just take the day off, and, and just thank the Lord for these good things in your life. And so home he goes. Boy, is he happy. Raise, promotion, this is absolutely tremendous. And as he gets home, he pulls in the driveway, and he looks over on the sidewalk, and there's his little boy's bicycle. Now, you know, he's told that boy a dozen times, do not leave your bicycle on that sidewalk. But you know what? He's in a good mood. And so as he heads up to the house, he picks up the bicycle and he slides it off to the side and he opens the door and there's a little boy standing there. Hi, boy, how you doing? Have a good day. Boy, I love you. It's so nice to be home. You're just, you know, off he goes. Monday, he goes back into work, gets called into the office. Boss says, Charlie, you know that raise in promotion? It's been a mistake. You didn't get the raise. You didn't get the promotion. As a matter of fact, there's been a merger and you don't even have a job. And I feel so bad for you. Why don't you just go home, take the day off? And so he leaves and he drives home, pulls in the driveway, and he looks and on the sidewalk. Guess what's there? There's that bicycle. Today, when he sees the bicycle, he thinks, how many times have I told that boy, don't leave the bike on the sidewalk? So he goes up. This time he takes the bike, throws it into the yard, heads in the door, and there's a little boy standing there. As soon as he looks out, how many times have I told you about that bicycle? The little guy kind of stands there. Man, I don't get it. Friday, he pats me on the head, hopes I had a good day. Today, for the exact same thing, he's ready to kill me. Now, should the bicycle be left on the sidewalk? No. But is that parent going to do his child any good? If one day he pats him on the head, and the next day he's ready to kill him, when the violation has been the same, on both days. Now again, Dad, you might say, well, he knows the bike shouldn't be there. Now listen, don't provoke your child to wrath. If we discipline our children based on the mood we're in instead of established standards, 
This is what is right in our home. Unless we use those standards, we will provoke our children to wrath. That's only one example of how many we could give. Let's go to yet another text. Go with me to Colossians chapter 3. It's a similar text, but there's a little bit different emphasis. In Colossians 3 and verse 20, Paul addresses the children. He says, children, obey your parents in all things. See that, young people? In all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. But then in verse 21, he comes back and he wants to talk to dad again. And he says, now, dad, I just told your children to obey you in all things, but now I want to say something to you. And so he says, fathers, provoke not your children. And you'll notice the little phrase, to anger is in italics. That means the translators put it there. It doesn't really help us. It simply says, fathers, provoke not your children, lest they be discouraged. Colossians 3, 21. The term discouraged means to be disheartened. It means to kill the spirit of your child. And many parents do just that. They dishearten their child. They discourage their child. They bring their child to the point of saying, hey, you know something? It doesn't matter what I do. I can't please my dad. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how hard I try. It's never enough. It's never good enough to please him. For instance, let's suppose dad has to work on a Saturday. And so the yard doesn't get mowed. And so little Johnny says, hey, mom, how about if I mow the yard for dad? I'll mow the yard and have it all done for him when he gets home. Mom says, okay, good idea. So she goes out, helps him get the mower started. He mows the whole yard, you know, and got it all done. And boy, when dad comes home, I mean, this little guy is proud as can be. Boy, I mowed the yard for my daddy. He's going to be so happy with me. I can hardly wait till he gets home. And so dad pulls in. Dad's tired. And there he's standing there, a little guy, you know. Dad, you see I mowed the yard? Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw you mowed the yard. But listen, you missed spots all over the yard. You didn't do any trimming, and you left the mower sitting out. You didn't clean it up. How many times have I told you if you're going to mow the yard, I want it done right, I want the trimming right, I want the mower cleaned up, put away. And there he is. You want to kill the spirit of your child? You want to bring him to discouragement? You want to bring him to the point of saying, hey, what's the sense of trying? doesn't matter what I do. Now, should he have made sure he mowed it right? Yeah. Should he have done the trimming? That would have been great. Should he have cleaned up the mower? It would have been terrific. But he didn't. But, Dad, you'd go a long way if you'd say to that boy, hey, listen, you did a great job. Thanks. How about after dinner, we'll go to a little couple spots we need to get, and we'll work on the trimming together and really have it done. But, boy, I just appreciate what you did. All the difference in the world. Now, will other people bring our children to discouragement? Yeah. There might be that school teacher who, no matter what your kid does, seems like he can never satisfy that teacher. There will be people like that in his life. But, Dad, it can't be you. You can't be the one who discourages and disheartens and kills the spirit. You can't be the one. And that's what the scripture tries to get across to us in so many areas. It's bringing it back time and time to this. God gave that child to you. And there is a world out there that is going to hurt him and fail him and seek to discourage him and destroy him. But when it comes to his parents, they must be the source 
of strength and encouragement and help. That's parenting. Let's look at some scriptures that teach us by way of illustration from the experience of people in the Bible. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 1. In 1 Kings chapter 1, there is a commentary on David's son, Adonijah. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 5. Here's what it says. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Interesting statement. Seemingly this rebellion comes out of nowhere. Here's the son of David, Adonijah, rises up, rebels against this man who is both his dad and his king. And Adonijah says, I will be king. And there's the rebellion. Why'd that happen? Well, we don't know all that is behind it. But it's as if God says to us, now I want to give you some information. I want to give you some insight on this situation. And so in verse 6, there's an interesting statement when it says, And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? See that? His father had not displeased him at any time in saying, why hast thou done so? In other words, David, who was a great king, had a heart for God, failed in parenting. Don't be afraid to face that. Sometimes we take people in the Bible and we lift them up and we want to get them some, some higher level above the rest of us. Listen, they were just human like we are. And David failed here. David at no time went to this son, Adonijah, and said, Hey, boy, what do you think you're doing? Never displeased him. You ever heard parents say this? I cannot understand why my child has rebelled. We have given him everything he ever wanted. Did you ever hear that? Guess what? Parents aren't supposed to give children everything they ever wanted. Sometimes good parents displease their children by saying, what do you think you're doing? Or no, you're not doing that. Or no, you're not going there. Or yes, you are going there. It's parenting. And David ends up with a rebel on his hands. Why? Because Adonijah said, you know, I've gotten everything I've ever wanted in life, and now I've decided I want the throne. And nobody has ever stood in my way before, so why should anybody stand in my way now? Permissiveness in the home, and we live in a world of permissive homes. Some of them verge more on uh, neglect than permissiveness. But we live in a homes where parents are not holding up godly standards before their children and saying, this you can do and this you can't do. And therefore, young people often grow up in that setting and think that they ought to be able to have anything they want in life. And they sometimes get to the point of walking over whoever they have to walk over to get it. And sometimes that includes their own parents. Look at the experience in 1 Samuel chapter 3. In 1 Samuel 3, we find God, the Lord, speaking to Samuel and talking about Eli. I'm sure you're familiar with the story and the experience, but let's take a moment to rehearse it. 
In 1 Samuel 3, verse 12 says this, In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. God said, Samuel, there is a judgment that I have pronounced against the house of Eli. Now that judgment is recorded for us back in chapter 2 and verse 32. Notice what it says. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation, in all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in thine house forever. That's quite a judgment. The judgment was basically this. God says, Eli, I want to tell you something. Forever, for all the generations to come, all the men that come forth from you will die young. There will not be an old man in your house forever. Why such a harsh judgment? What was at hand? What was the issue? What had Eli done? The problem with Eli was this. He had two sons, Phinehas and Hophni, and they made themselves vile. They were wicked sons. It was not because they were wicked that the judgment came. The judgment came because Eli knew it, and Eli did not restrain them. In other words, Eli didn't stop them. Now, if you read the text, you'll find out that Eli spoke to them. Eli rebuked them. Eli said, hey, fellas, what you're doing is terrible. You shouldn't be doing this. But he never stopped them. Dad and Mom, it is our responsibility to stop our children from making themselves vile. It's part of the reason God entrusted them to us. That's our obligation. The judgment that came upon Eli's house did not come because of what the children did. The judgment came because of what the father did not do. Dad, you're in charge. And Dad, you're responsible. God holds parents, especially dads, responsible. Now, I want you to contrast what happens with Eli's family and household with Abraham. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, the Lord, along with two angels, has stopped at the tent door of Abraham on his way to bring the judgment upon Sodom. And in verse 16 of chapter 18, we read this. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now verse 19 is the key verse. Look at it. For I know him. God said, I know this man. I know Abraham. That he will command his children and his household after him. 
That's the first part of the statement that's very important. Not simply, I know him, and he'll command his children to do right. It's not that. He will command his children and his household after him. Abraham was not a dad who simply said, do this, do that, don't do this. Abraham was a dad who, like unto Joshua, could say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was Abraham. It goes on. It says, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Interesting statement. The term keep means to guard, to preserve, or to defend. And then the term way is a term that would speak of a, a trodden path. Uh, when you grew up, was there a trodden path around your house? You know, the kind of path where they'd say, look, you know, the, the pond is about a half mile down there, but all you have to do is get on the path and if you'll stay on the path, you can't miss the pond. You know what that is? You know that path? Somebody's walked it before. All you've got to do is stay on the path. That's the way right here in this verse. And so here's what God says about Abraham's children. He says, I know him, and his children will keep, they will defend, they will preserve, they will guard the trodden path of God. Now, I want to tell you something. That's what I want for my children. And I hope that's what you want for your children. I want my children, they're pretty well grown up now, but I want my children to look at the way of God and say, you know something? I see the trodden path of God, and I'm going to preserve it. And I'm going to defend it. And I'm going to stand for it. In other words, that they would recognize that there is a battle going on over this way of God, and there are many who are rising up today who are saying, hey, let's go a different direction. And I want my children to stand up and say, no, we're not going a different direction. We're going to defend the old ways of God. That's what I want my children to do. hope that's what you want your children to do. I don't want my children to simply sit in a pew and be an observer of what's going on. Not that they have to all be preachers, but I want them to be involved in the work of God. I want them in the various churches where they might be, if they see a church going in the wrong direction, that they'll be one of the ones to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. I'm not willing to go in that direction. I want to stand for the things of God that I've always known. I want to defend those things. hope that's what you want. He says this, to do justice. That word justice is most often translated in the Bible, righteousness. God said, you know, I know this man Abraham. His children will do righteousness. Now, we live in a day where I confess in my life and probably in yours too, sometimes it's hard to know what is right. You ever been there? Sure. It's hard to know what is right. Look at a situation, you say, boy, I'm not sure whether this is right or this is right or this is right. I'm not sure. I think that's okay. I think we need to wrestle and figure out what is right. But here's the thing. The point of this text is, once they knew what was right, they were going to do it. And that's the problem with our day. 
The problem with our day is that there are lots of people who know what is right. They just won't do it. Bless your heart. When you know what is right, do it. And beg God for your children that they will grow up with a commitment to do right. That they'll see what it is and do it. Now, the next little term here speaks of discernment. When it says they will do justice and judgment. And the term judgment speaks of discernment, understanding. And we do live in a day where there's not a whole lot of discernment. It's amazing how many people see a bandwagon coming along that teaches something totally different than we've ever stood for, and people just jump on the bandwagon. God said, well, I want to tell you about Abraham's children. They will not only be committed to doing what is right, but they will be able to exercise discernment so they can understand the times in which they live and will have the ability to figure out what is right and what is wrong. And that's what I want for my children. And I hope that's what you want for your children. Now, what I want you to see is that in both the case of Eli and the case of Abraham, what happened to that family or those families was not attributed to the children. But in Eli's case, the judgment that fell upon him was attributed to dad. And in Abraham's case, what happened to his children was also attributed to dad. Dad's serious business to have children. Parental responsibility. We have to accept that. Let me give you some practical things to think about in that regard, and then we'll close. Number one, I would challenge you and re-challenge myself to leave here tonight accepting responsibility for our children. Walk out of here, no matter where you are in life, whether you're the great-granddad or granddad or dad or wherever you are, walk out of here and say, okay, I will accept responsibility. It's only when we accept responsibility that we have a chance to go before God and get help. If we're going to blame somebody else, then there's no help for us because after all, you know, we didn't do anything. It's somebody else anyway, so what can we do? But if we walk out of here and say, hey, maybe I did do some things wrong. Or maybe I am right now doing some things wrong. But Lord, I will accept responsibility. You gave that boy or that girl to me. And therefore, I accept responsibility. And I ask you, God, to help me to do whatever I can do and should do now. Can't change the past, can you? Wish you could. You can't. But God will meet you where you are right now. Accept responsibility for your children. Secondly, I would encourage you to commit yourself to blame no one else. It may be that you're sitting here tonight and you see your child, you know, with a certain direction they're going, and you, you tend to say, well, you know, if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for somebody else, forget that. Blame no one else. Just accept responsibility. And then let me encourage you to lower your expectations for other people. You know, one of the problems we have is that we have too high of an expectation for other people. In other words, here's a typical thing. Somebody might say, you know, my, my little boy was sick. You know, my little boy was sick. The Sunday school teacher did not call, did not come, did not send a note, did not send a card. I mean, what's wrong with them anyway? And I didn't hear from the pastor, and I didn't hear from other people who knew about it, and there he was sick all week, and I didn't hear from anybody. Woe is me how terrible everybody is. Lower your expectations. You see, when you have high expectations, 
should have been a call, should have been a card, should have been a this, should have been a that. When you have high expectations, you have a whole lot of disappointment in life. Because guess what? Everybody in this room is really just trying to make it. Aren't you? How was your week last week? Hey, I'm just glad I got through. So if you have high expectations, oh, he should have done this and that and this and that. Oh, you're going to suffer a lot. But you know, if you lower your expectations, you don't expect a call and a card and a visit and whatever. You don't expect any of that. And somebody calls. That's exciting. Say, hey, I didn't, I didn't think anybody would call. I know everybody's busy. I know everybody has their problems. But you know what? He called. Man, that's terrific. Then you get excited about life, see? Lower your expectations. We're all in this together, aren't we? We're in it together. And you have your struggles, and I have mine, and the guy next to you has his, and, and man, one week you have a good week, next week it's a bad week, and somebody's sick, and somebody's down, and the car problem, whatever it is. Bless our hearts, we're just trying to get through. Can't wait till the Lord Jesus comes and takes us home. Lower your expectations. Everybody's trying to get through and do the best they can. And if along the way somebody cares enough to give you a call and say, hey, how you doing? Thank God for that. And especially when it comes to your children. Shouldn't somebody have? Why didn't they? Lower your expectations. And then rejoice if somebody goes out of their way to do something special for your boy or your girl. Pray. You pray for your children every day by name. I suggest to you probably nobody else is, so you better. And it doesn't matter if they're grown up, doesn't matter where they are, every day by name. Once in a great while, somebody comes along and says something like this, you know, I want you to know I pray for you every day. That's very, very rare. And I'd like to tell you, you know, as your pastor, I'd like to tell you, hey, I want you to know something. I pray for you every day by name. I don't. But there is a group that I do try to pray for every day by name. That's the Griffith group. And you better pray for your group by name every day. Pray for them. Why? Because you and I believe with all our hearts that prayer makes a difference, doesn't it? That prayer reaches the heart of God. And we have to believe that when we pray, some things will happen that would not happen otherwise. And therefore, if we want our children to grow up to love God, to serve God, to walk with God, let it not ever be cast back to us, well, you know, if you had prayed for your kids, if you had prayed for your grandchildren, pray for them. Protect your children. Protect your children. I want to tell you something. It would be wonderful if in a group like this, everybody had the same standards. Wouldn't that be great? We don't. We love each other anyway. But we don't have the same standards. And so the time will come when this will happen. Your little guy will get a phone call. And he'll get off the phone. He'll say, hey, Dad. I've been invited over to so-and-so's house to spend the night. Can I go? And you'll know this. 
if I let him go over to that house, he's going to see things I don't want him to see. He's going to do things I don't want him to do. He's going to hear things I don't want him to hear because I know that house is different than my house. But if I tell him, no, man, that guy's going to be mad at me and his wife's going to be mad at me. And Now listen, protect your children. Protect your children. And somewhere along the line, you and I have to find the grace coupled with courage to say to somebody, listen, I can't let him come. I love you, but I can't let him come. Especially when he comes over and says, hey, man, I've invited your boy to my house five times. You never let him come. What's wrong? Is there something wrong with us? I love you. But I know this. If I let him go to your house, he's going to see things I don't want him to see. He's going to do things I don't want him to do. He's going to hear things I don't want him to hear. And I love you, man, but God gave that boy to me. It's parental responsibility. Now, again, it'd be great if we all had the same standards. We don't. It's okay. But God gave your children to you. Never forget it. Never forget it. Guard them from worldly influences. Guard them because God in His grace and mercy entrusted to you a life, maybe more than one. And listen, that little boy, girl, now maybe big boy, big girl, going to live forever. Going to live forever. I can't fathom it. Can't fathom it for myself. Can't fathom it for them. But God gave you the privilege as a parent to bring that life into existence. That child's going to live somewhere forever. God gave it to you. Be very, very serious about parenting. Perhaps no greater privilege, perhaps no greater responsibility than to have that child.